0: Welcome to another podcast of Stories and Innovations in ALS with Lisa Deegan, and I'm McFinn LeVere at everythingals.org.
1: Hello and welcome to Stories and Innovation in ALS. My name is Lisa Deegan, and I am joined today by my co-host, LeVere. We're storytellers who've both both been affected by ALS. We've helped found a nonprofit called Everything ALS, whose mission is to bring citizen-driven research along with data technology and science to help accelerate treatments for ALS. This podcast brings together the stories of those affected and those who are innovating and investigating in this space to help accelerate treatments for this devastating disease. Today's episode, Community and ALS, shares Shay Harden's story and journey with ALS as she lost her younger brother Graham Harden, just a few months ago. shay has been a huge asset to the ALS community, doing a ton of advocacy work, creating, managing, hosting several fundraisers for her brother while he went through his journey. Shay actually lives here in Los Altos with me. Our kids uh, went to preschool together. So we we have some history and we've been friends for many years. And it's strange how both of our younger brothers came down with ALS within a year of one another. And they were both around the same age. So Shay, we want to thank you for being here today. We truly are honored and appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us. I know it's um, not always an easy subject to talk about, but we believe in the power of storytelling and helping to spread awareness on ALS and the need for treatments, good care, and a cure. So now let's get to Shay's story.
0: All right, Shay. It's a pleasure to meet you today. It's a pleasure. Yeah, that you would share your story with us. And we would love to hear about Graham. Can you just tell us what kind of human being that gentleman was?
2: Oh, boy, he was one of the best. That's for sure. Um, he um, was a collegiate athlete, all star athlete, where he made a name for himself in the world of lacrosse. His um when he was a um, senior in college. He was at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He captained the uh, men's lacrosse team to an undefeated NCAA championship, where he was then named player of the year and best defenseman in the nation. So he has, um, and he's one of those people that doesn't matter, didn't matter what sport he he picked up, he excelled at it. But um, that's just his his sort of um, his skill set. What he was even better known for was his heart. Um, he just was um, the sort of person that put other people first all the time um, without even questioning it. And so when he was diagnosed with the, this disease, people came out of the woodwork to help him. It's the old adage that, you know, you get back what you give and he had given so much that he got it in spades uh, upon his diagnosis. He was um, a volunteer firefighter and first responder in his community for 10 years, so he knew the community quite well from that role. He was the captain of the fire department and um, he was a volunteer, very successful volunteer boys and girls lacrosse coach. And so through those roles, he, um, he was very connected to his community. And that played a big factor in how we, will, we were able to support him after his diagnosis. Um, and you know, it's, um, it's something that I like to share with other people because everybody has a community. Um, it could be your work community. It could be your family community. It could be your neighborhood, your school no matter what it is, when you get this type of a diagnosis, it is very difficult to go through it alone. And so um, you you really need to rely on that community. And if people offer to help, your answer should always be um, yes, please, and thank you. So, um, yeah. And that's one thing that Graham said too towards the end of his disease is he really learned how to ask for help too. You know, lots of people don't like to ask for help. and he learned how to do that and he learned how to um, how to use the word love more. He said tell people you love them, your friends, your coworkers, not just family. There's a lot of different types of love out there and tell
1: people. So um, those are some yeah. really, really good tips. And I, yeah. I want to dive into all. Of you know your work and and what and more learn more about Graham, but I want to also back up just to get a sense of um, how how did Graham know something was wrong? Because this, this comes on so differently for everyone. So you know we like to share all the stories of how it all also started. You know what what was going on with Graham that you went uh-huh, something's not right. So he
2: um, started to get weakness in his left leg Mm -hmm. and he was um, out running one day. It was right around Thanksgiving of 2015 Mm -hmm. and um, he tripped and fell Mm. and thought, what did I trip on? Looked around, there was nothing obvious. So he just sort of forgot about it. Mm. But a couple of weeks later it happened again. And then shortly afterwards, he got foot drop. And so by February, he was limping everywhere and he didn't know what it was, but he couldn't lift that big toe. And so people were teasing him saying, Graham, come on, you're an all-star athlete, you know, go get that fixed and um, get back. He played in a men's ice hockey league and a men's lacrosse league. So they were bugging him to just figure it out so you can get back here and join us. Yeah. And... So it, it wasn't until then that he started going to different specialists and um, he went to everyone from um, you know, his, his, his internist to um, a uh, back doctor, orthopedic um, surgeon who actually proposed doing surgery on his back, yeah. thought it was a nerve issue. Yeah. And the person that led him down the right path was actually a physical therapist. He went to see a physical therapist and in the process of working with Graham, this person said, I think you need to see a neurologist. I think this is nerve based. Uh So he was diagnosed, um, on August 16th of 2016. I had seen him in June. So in June of 2016, I've, um, two other brothers. So there's four of us, four siblings and my mother, and it was the, um, 25th anniversary of our father's passing mm-hmm. and so we gathered together in washington dc mm-hmm. to just be together as a family because we live in very different places around the country yeah. and we went for a walk one day and i saw the limp and he hadn't <laughs> said a word to me yet oh. but i brought it up and sort of jokingly like well, what are you limping for is that your old knee injury and I could tell immediately by the look on his face that it was something very different, mm. and he had pulled me aside and said, "You know, don't say anything to mom yet. I'm still being tested, but I've been doing my own research online, and it might not be good." Mm-hmm. So I had a precursor yeah. prior to August.
1: Uh, obviously, always hoping for the best. So uh, this is about a year time frame, though, from from yeah. the first yeah. initial trip mm-hmm. to he's getting close to figuring out what's going on. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then
2: um, I think it, um, he seemed to, to sort of chug along really slowly for a while, but then it hit his respiratory function. Um, he still had the use of his hands and arms somewhat, could text mm-hmm. to the very end, actually he had a thumb. Mm-hmm. But um, he uh, his respiratory decline happened pretty quickly. I think. Did he
0: ever have to go on a respirator? He did a, a ventilator. Yeah.
2: yeah. He um, and interestingly enough, we, we joked around with him after he um, got his tracheostomy, and we're like, "God, you were so lucky. You got in just before COVID. So in the beginning of January 2020." Uh, he had a respiratory event. He was rushed to the hospital, struggling to breathe. And they said he had RSV, and um, but they said, you've got to make a choice right now. Do you want a tra- tracheostomy? Do you want to go on a ventilator? And he decided to try it. And, um, I, and I'll get to some of the um, points that I wanted to make about working with other groups out there. There's so many support groups in the world of ALS in... It's so important for families to rely on them. Um, I picked up the phone and called um, Team Gleason when Graham was struggling with this decision to understand what are the pros and cons? What will it be like for the first few months? What do I tell Graham? What kind of advice can I share with him as he's trying to make this decision? And they, as they, as they had been throughout his whole illness, they were very helpful very direct and specific. Obviously one person's experience isn't necessarily the same as somebody else's but it was helpful to have that information.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, So he got, um, he was on a ventilator in January of 2020, came home at the end of February um, with a, on his ventilator and a backup ventilator, and then COVID hit in March, and he would have been ineligible for the procedure, and there wouldn't have been ventilators available. So he, that's why we joke with him: "You <laughs> were so lucky. Um, Timing was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was.
1: Was would you say that was one of um, the hard? Because one of my questions would obviously be like, you know, what are some of the challenges?" um, that you have to face. And I know there's so many, so you can touch on all the things, you know, whether it's reaching out to organizations or making that decision of a ventilator, you know, so share, share some of the roadblocks and challenges. Well, it, uh, the
2: biggest roadblock as most people know is it, it becomes, um, very expensive once you move to a ventilator because, Mm -hmm. um, you need at that point, then 24 seven care. And most families can't provide that themselves. Mm. I was, um, my sister-in-law fortuitously happens to be a nurse. However, um, when Graham was diagnosed, um, the timing um, financially was horrible for them because he had left his job and was trying to start a company. Mm -hmm. So he didn't have his own health insurance. He didn't have an income. And he they'd taken some of their savings to put into this business. So they were suddenly in a very precarious financial position. So she actually had to go back to work. And so she couldn't be that person for many reasons. One, because they needed the income. Two, if you've ever watched the documentary Gleason, the big takeaway from there is the spouse should not be um, caregiver on top of spouse. It's exhausting um, both physically and emotionally. And you can't be a spouse if you're just a caregiver. So, um, and then hiring uh, caregiving, excuse me, I have allergies. Uh, hiring caregiving uh, is not covered by Medicare. There are some long-term healthcare plans that may cover it. Uh, it that was a moot point in his case, because he didn't have long-term healthcare. And um, so it's all out of pocket.
0: Did you have social security disability? He did, yeah. And how long did that take to kick in?
2: um, Pretty quickly. We got on top of that right away. That kicked in within, um, uh, I want to say, less than five months it was like three months it he he got it really quickly
1: yeah and this is before that act was passed yeah Uh, yeah so you you got we're on the fast track because normally it would take you know there's the waiting period yeah but Um, i I think
2: it was also technically because he was unemployed uh, i might have um facilitated his um receiving the money sooner probably yeah so um uh lost my train of thought. Um, so, so money is one thing, right, uh, for a tra- tracheostomy. Yes. Um, then if you do have the fu- money, finding qualified caregiving, oh. as Lisa, I know you are well aware of this um, point, um, is challenging. Mm-hmm. So when when Graham um, had the RSV event, I flew out from California to Ohio to assist my sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. And she took over. She just sat at the hospital with him, day in and day out, mm-hmm. and I um, took care of everything else, which meant calling all the different care agencies, interviewing the caregivers, understanding their costs, how do they have backup if somebody gets sick, um, all of their protocols. It's um, it was it took a good um, eight weeks to find somebody, probably,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and. Um, you know, when, when you're talking about ventilators, uh, it's not standard care.
0: Yeah. Even the
2: RNs and LPNs have to be specifically trained in ventilator care and not all of them have that. In fact, most don't. So you
1: have to clean it a lot, right? And there's factions yeah. involved and there's replacing every, yeah. I, I don't know if it's every. So I set up or... an entire
2: inventory system for them cause you have to stay on top of all the parts for this. And um, I, it, this spreadsheet is huge, but it lists the parts for the trach and the tubes and the cough assist and the um, the suction and the yank hour and all these different parts and pieces. And at what point do you need to reorder this? And when do you need to reorder that? And then we set up the whole cleaning protocol. We learned how to do that in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, But here's another, was another interesting thing because ALS is a terminal disease, insurance, there is, um, at least at the hospital that Graham was at, um, there is an uh, affiliated um, facility where people on uh, ventilators go to learn how to live with it and uh, eventually how to transition off of it. And they teach the um, family members how to take care of somebody on a ventilator. Graham didn't qualify because ALS was terminal, so insurance wouldn't pay for him to go over there. I was beside myself, yeah. I, I can't tell you how many phone calls I made to the insurance company and the doctors on Graham's behalf too, like this is ridiculous, so we had to train ourselves in the hospital, we reached out to all the different doctors, the physical therapists to, to understand the different exercises to do with him, the, um, um, uh, what do they call all the lung people to, to learn how to do the suctioning and the, um, the ventilator, and, and we wrote up our own training pamphlet, because we were just taking notes ourselves, nobody handed us anything to say, here's how you care for him when he goes home. I mean, thank goodness, my, my sister in law had nursing training, uh, because the, the, um, the healthcare providers didn't show up until well after Graham had returned home. You so think this
0: if- is still the way it is that they're not providing the proper training when they're sending people home.
2: they don't have training in place so it was like piecemeal where we had to ask for it okay can the physical therapist come now and show us how to you know um, the different exercises to do with his arms and his legs okay can the um um uh, the pulmonologist come and show us how to suction him and do the the cough assist Okay, can, so we had to go through the list and ask ourselves and then they would come and they didn't have anything to hand us, they just showed us and told us so I recorded everything on my phone. I wrote notes, so that it we would have it and could reference back to it but yeah there wasn't like a. a,
1: a you should share around. what you've done Shay with people that are going through this because not only did you do all of the research on getting coverage and then once you had the coverage, you, who do you, who do you talk to? How do you get trained? What's the protocol? You know, you did so much. You could share this information if you had it like in a document uh, for people going through this. I mean, you you would save people days of, of their time just
2: skipping forward and getting well so and another piece of it and i do have a lot of it written down and i'm happy to share i've shared actually with um people individually who call me i get calls all the time from newly diagnosed people and i share everything that i know it's it's as you well know those first few weeks and months of being diagnosed are devastating emotionally Mm -hmm. and um, to have some sort of guidance as to, this is what you need to be focused on in the beginning. And then you can focus on this and um, is quite helpful. Priceless. So yeah, going back to community, boy, um, mm-hmm. it, it was the power of Graham's community was extraordinary. So when he was, and I can give examples from the beginning when he was diagnosed early on to when he got the, um, um, the tracheostomy. But one of the other difficult things when you get a tracheostomy is if you haven't already modified your home, you need to do that before you get home. And it's more than just um, making it wheelchair accessible. It's having a place for all the equipment, having a um, bed that you could easily, somebody could easily help you get into, which is not necessarily where you were before. So we sort of thought all this out while Graham was in the um, hospital. And I called on their community. I sent out, I got all the, the, everyone's text um, numbers. And I sent out a broad blast and said, I need people at um, the Hardens' house on this particular Saturday morning to help me move furniture. Is anyone available? Uh, 30 to 40 people showed up. It was extraordinary. It was like one of those home um, renovation HGTV shows. One person who was a decorator was moving pictures around and curtains around and then you know other people were moving furniture from the basement um, up back down to the basement all all over the place and. um, That whole house was completely modified so that when Graham came home, he had space he had you know he could he could see a TV he had access to a handicap accessible bathroom. He had a bed right there. He had all the various supplies um, labeled and put away in cupboards. It was, but there's no way I could have done that on my own. Not a chance. And people are m- more than happy to help. There's um, My alma mater likes to use the phrase when they um, look to people for donations, um, time, talent, and treasure. And most people think about treasure when they're trying to get donations for their organization because everybody needs money, right? But time and talent are just as important and particularly on an individual basis. Um, and so we, uh, we, we welcomed that and people offered all sorts of time and all sorts of talent. We had um, a pro bono lawyer writing their, um, um, their trust. We had Um, A friend of theirs who was a contractor and did a lot of the modifications pro bono, he got um, sub vendors subcontractors to do it pro bono as well. So um, it was and and the people were delighted to use their skills to help him. And that's such an important message for everyone to remember when they're diagnosed with this is yeah you're going to need money. But you're going to need expertise and help. And don't be afraid to ask for it. And don't be afraid to receive it.
0: Shay, did you have a bed or did Graham have a bed in his living room besides in his bedroom?
2: Yes. So once he got the tra- the ventilator, he- his space became the living room.
0: Hmm. But
2: part of that um, magical overhaul of their Um, living space was making the um, turning it into a friendly area so the bed had um, bed coverings on it that made it look like a couch so it didn't look like a hospital bed you couldn't even tell it was there and we put a privacy curtain around the wall so that if you needed um, you know to do anything privately you could just pull the curtain around but the curtains look like drapes so it was very um, it was a very respectful way to do it so he could have people over and not feel sick. Right. He was just right. in a living room
0: for me. My when people came to visit, they would come into my office because uh, that's where my hospital bed was. They would visit with me for 15 or 20 minutes. Then they would go to the living room and visit with Mona. Wow. And then one day they all thought I was asleep and they just left the house. And I wasn't asleep. So from then on, it was like, I need to be moved out of this office. I need to be where everybody is at. I'm not sick. I am just having a hard time. So don't put me away.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, my brother was part
2: of the community part and being where you can see the rest of the family, too. If If you've got family walking around, whether it's the dog or a spouse or kids or and we positioned grand so that he faced the front window out the front of the house, which was awesome, because even after covid hit when people couldn't be around for a long time, they would um file by his window and they put big poster signs up or they just wave or blow a kiss. So it was um it was a very interactive place to be. So I agree with you then it's
1: yeah you don't want to be stuck in the back of you, you really talk about the importance of community and boy did what was Graham blessed and surrounded now you mentioned the need for money too. So I know you've done all this medical help. You were like, you were Johnny on the spot with everything. Can you share some of your efforts sure. on, on your fundraising Shay? Cause that in itself was amazing. So, um, I
2: took, um, a lesson out of my own personal experience playbook in organization and, um, as soon as Graham was diagnosed, the first thing I did was call Graham and his wife Dawn and I said, look, you all just focus on Graham's health. I've got your back and my other two brothers as well. We'll figure out the other stuff, but you focus there. So I said, if people call offering help, ask them to call me. And what I did was um, I very gratefully said yes to everybody who wanted to help, who wanted to do a fundraiser rather than taking every fundraiser on myself. I um, created an a infrastructure to facilitate all the other um, smaller fundraisers. Mm-hmm. Um, Graham happens to know people in different parts of the country and in, in like the we grew up in Connecticut. So there's an, um, a big support base there. He went to school in North Carolina. So he's got support base there. He lived in Ohio. Um, so all these different groups wanted to help. Mm-hmm. And um, I, um, Created the infrastructure to accept donations, to have kind of um, a rallying cry or theme around Graham's support, which became GForce, GForce Game On. Um, um, common um, t shirts, and um, I created the um, set up all the legal documents. Um, so all of that infrastructure helped the people who are doing, who wanted to, to do a fundraiser, just go. And so, uh, we had, I also reached out and realized that it would be helpful to have an advisory board and then each of board member could oversee one of those. So I picked a group of 13 people from across different walks of Graham's life to, assist me and be on that advisory board and I had started off as weekly calls eventually they became monthly calls and then quarterly calls but um, it was a great way setting up that infrastructure was a great way to run a whole bunch of fundraisers and one important thing with ALS is it's a devastating diagnosis and there's a a lot of emotional um, outpouring of support very early on later too but particularly early on. Mm -hmm. And if you can leverage that sort of common grief at that early time, you can um, get the funds you need to set aside for when it becomes a very expensive disease, particularly at the tracheostomy stage. And that's what we did. We really focused that first year on doing as many fundraisers as we could. We did auctions, we did um, screening of a movie, we did a bocce ball tournament, we did a polo event, we did online raffles, we did golf tournaments, uh, we did lacrosse clinics. So there was, we had a lot going on and, um, and it all adds up, right? One is good, but <laughs> a lot is, is even better. And then the other thing we did was uh, we did not start a 501c3. A lot of people feel like they need to start a nonprofit yeah. right away. The problem yeah. is when you start a 501c3,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, the law requires that you donate that all that money to multiple sources, not to an individual.
1: Okay.
2: So, and that's fine. We actually did donate money anyway to... Um, like ALS TDI and some other worthy causes when we felt like we had, you know, a, a, a good fundraiser.
1: But this was money for Graham to
2: survive. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. We needed so money. what we did was we reached out to other ALS organizations that are out there for this purpose to help people with the financial burden of ALS. For yeah. example, Hark ALS, yeah. um, Project Main Street, Brigance Brigade, uh, Team Gleason, All these groups um, do different things to help people at different stages, whether it's a flat out grant or um, paying for some of the home health care or paying for the technology or improving their sort of um, life experiences. Uh, Team Gleason does that by sponsoring um, adventure trips. So, um, but we partnered with each of, um, at least one of those groups for each fundraiser so that any individual who might want to make a larger donation could go through a 501 C three. Yeah, And so that was a really good model to use.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I was always impressed by um, all of your fundraising efforts shake as we would go walking and you'd say, Oh, you know, we raised money doing this and doing that and the people who showed up. It was amazing. I mean, you always had so much support around you guys, which makes a pretty crappy situation. Um, to be the best that it can be under the circumstances. So you did an amazing job at all of that.
2: Well, thank you. I mean, we were fortunate in that Graham had some public recognition from his success in the lacrosse world. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that, um, and we use, but you could do this with anybody. You don't have to have excelled in a particular field. We immediately started reaching out to um, press in different areas. So U.S. Lacrosse Magazine, ESPN, Mm -hmm. um, the NCAA, the local newscasters, Mm -hmm. and we encourage stories on Graham. Mm -hmm. And so the more um, sort of um, visible the diagnosed person becomes, the easier it is to do some of the fundraising. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Jay, can you point us as an organization in some direction that you feel that ALS is really not fulfilling?
2: Um, well, so one of the things that um, always troubled me a little bit is that I feel like the ALS support world is very fragmented. So there's lots of groups trying to do different things and ALS is a rare disease really needs some consolidation. And so um, I think that the, the different um, support functions should stay as they are, but the, the um, um, sort of um, fragmenting all of the fundraising for research is an issue. And if there is a way, so I, I discourage anybody who is new to the space from starting another fundraising group, providing support in different ways, either as you guys have done so beautifully through educating patients and bringing awareness to it, to, um, you know, maybe targeting a particular technology or innovation, but all these smaller buckets of funds and grant giving makes it really difficult for some of these um, new um, or smaller uh, pharmaceutical companies to get funds right? because they've got to go to each um, of the different organizations and write a grant proposal. And if there were one source that was allocating larger amounts, I think that would um, perhaps accelerate some of the research results
1: instead of everybody being on an island, just bringing yeah. it together. And, and like with the ice bucket money, wouldn't that have been helpful if we had that yeah. money to put that in would have been helpful. And that's that actually kind of an changer. example.
2: It's an example of an organization that does a lot of good things, but you can't do everything. Right. And so kind of staying in your wheelhouse for this disease is so important. Their their expertise is not research, it's patient support, right? Um, which and is like which is the so- ALS loan closet is an is an extraordinary um, um, uh, uh, um, thing for, for ALS patients. We use that repeatedly. I think it's fabulous that they have those loan closets, and that's just one example of what they do.
1: Well, support is so important, but we need research to get to the cure, because if we have the cure, then we don't need support, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's where the money needs to go. We can't ignore that people are sick and they need help. I went through this with my brother. I get that. They need help, right? But we really need the research because that's going to alleviate all these other issues. And Lisa, you've trying...
2: the beginning, since I've known you
1: since John yeah. was sick. Um,
2: research for biomarkers is so critical because yeah. once we've identified the biomarkers, then the clinical trials become more effective and it's everything, you know, rolls from there. Yep. That's, and
1: right. that's what well, we're,
0: we're, we're trying to do. <laughs> early detection is such a valuable, it's, it's way too much stress, all of the, our folks guessing yeah. what is yeah. wrong with me. Yeah.
1: Absolutely.
0: The essence of our community is care for each other as an extended family. And just by having you come today and share the pieces of your puzzle, because everybody's got a piece of the puzzle. And once we gather together enough of us, we're gonna see that we have a clear picture of our direction. And, you know, Shay, everything is coming from the heart because the people that we're trying to help we're in love with these people. We know where they've been. And so there's nothing that we're not going to do. So I just want to say thank you because thanks is a small word, but it is a big commitment that you gave. And so I want to give you one beautiful new view of hope. Hope is the hammer that we're gonna use to break the glass on the alarm, to sound action. People, come on. So it used to be passive with hope, but hope is not passive anymore. Adi. Well said. Yes. And thank
2: you. And thank you both for everything that you've been doing. Um, You're making a huge difference in Awareness and education and research. So I, I really commend all the time you've spent on this. As we all know, it's um, it, it's a life commitment.
1: It's consuming. It's all consuming
0: and all giving. It is it is both sides, black and white. It is it is the whole picture, and we are so proud to be on the front line, trying to be of service. just that simple
2: thank you
1: yeah thank you so much shay it's it's so nice to be surrounded by people that have been through this because there's just like a non-spoken um just a knowledge yeah just an understanding um just a space that we all get and it's unspoken you don't even need to talk about it that's right yeah you just in the presence of the others we know
0: yeah. And as this program comes to an end, one more time, Shay, without your help, we would be a little bit less down the road. So please keep it up. Thank you so Thank
2: much. Thank you. Thank you
1: both. Thanks, Shay. It was great to talk to you today. Of course. Take care.
0: Okay. Let's Bye. walk our
1: dogs soon. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Bye for Bye. now. Bye.
0: Thanks for joining us in our journey of exploration and digging deep into the souls of those affected by ALS and those working tirelessly to help put an end to this devastating disease. Your stories and work matter so much to us and to so many. Keep sharing and continuing to help further the research in ALS so we don't have to see another person suffer. Do you know anyone suffering from ALS? Are you a researcher, neurologist, pharma, or biotech company working in the ALS space? If so, we would love to hear from you. Contact us at info at everythingals.org. Thank you, folks.